Now, when we first hear about Jesus and turn from our sin to trust him, everything changes at that moment, at that time. Up to that time, before then, we had been guilty before God. And because of our guilt, cut off from relationship with God, facing his judgment. That's where we were before we turned to Christ. But then, remember the day we heard about Jesus? Jesus, whose teaching transforms people's lives. Jesus, whose touch healed an unclean leper. Jesus, whose power raised a widow's only son from the dead. Jesus, whose presence filled people's empty hearts. And Jesus, whose death on the cross paid for the sins of everyone who will trust him and who rose from the dead to prove that that's true. So we heard about Jesus. And when we turned from our sin and put our trust in Jesus, everything changed. All of our guilt before God was washed away. No more guilt. Guilt is gone. God's forgiveness was poured into our hearts, poured into our lives. We knew we were forgiven. Jesus' love filled our hearts for the first time. That all-satisfying love that we had been longing for all our lives filled us, and we were welcomed by God and accepted by God and forgiven by God and loved by God. Everything changed when that happened. Now, it'd be wonderful if that experience of assurance and love and joy, if that just continued all the way to heaven. But it doesn't. The Bible is clear, and we know from our own experience, don't we, that there are times when we don't experience that. Because Satan loves to remind us of our past sin. Satan loves to remind us, remember you did that, and you did that? He likes to just kind of take us by the scruff of the neck and rub our noses in it. Look at that. You think Jesus will forgive that? You think God can love someone like you? And Satan loves to have us sink down into guilt and shame and no longer being sure that we're loved by God and that we're forgiven by God. This is something we all experience. Every follower of Jesus will have times when we experience this. I would guess that some of you are experiencing this right now. So glad you're here this morning to hear this passage. It's very timely. So the question is, what do you do at those times when you're experiencing that? What do you do when you've confessed your sins? You've repented of all the sins you're aware of. You're not perfect, but you've, you've confessed, but you're still feeling shame and guilt you're not sure that you're loved and forgiven by God. What do you do at those times? God tells us in Psalm 130 what we should do. Let's turn there. This summer as a church, we're going through a series where we are learning how to pray by studying various Psalms. It's been very encouraging. And this morning we're going to learn how to pray when we are battling false Guilt, Satan's false accusations of guilt. How do we pray when we bat are battling false guilt 
And we're going to learn that from Psalm 130. So let's turn there and look at verse 1, the first four words. We read a song of ascents, a song of ascents. Now, this, this description of Psalms is given to 15 of them, 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. They are all called a song of ascents. And that word ascent, like you're, you're ascending, it has the idea of going upstairs. And so most scholars think that these songs of ascents were sung by the people of Israel, the people of God, as they were walking up the steps heading towards worship in Jerusalem. These 15 psalms. So let's read this song of ascents. And as we read, notice what the psalmist is struggling with. Notice what he's going through. Verse 1. A song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. He repeats that. wants to make sure we get that. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord, church. God's perfect truth. God's own words given to us. What a gift. Okay, so what was the author going through in Psalm 130? Notice in verse 1, he says he's in the depths. Read that verse again. Out of the depths. And that's the Hebrew word. I just want to write it here so we can compare with some other passages. It's the word ma'amakayim. Ma'amakim, sorry. Ma'amakim. Out of the depths, the ma'amakim, I cry to you, O Lord. Now, what does it mean to be in the depths? How can we figure that out? One of the best ways is to look for that same word in other Psalms, to see what is said about them in those Psalms. And so I did that, and here's what I found. Very helpful passage, Psalm 69, 14 through 15, which uses that same word, depths, ma'amakim, but then elaborates on it so we get a more full picture of what's, what's happening. Psalm 69, 14 through 15. The psalmist says, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep, ma'amakim, waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep, ma'amakim, swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. So notice the word deep or depth, same Hebrew word is used twice in these verses. And by looking at the rest of the things the psalmist says, we can see that to be in the depths means you are sinking down into the mire. You're going down into deep waters which could swallow you up. You are sinking and you're not, you can't do anything to, to lift yourself back up. 
How many of you have ever been in the ocean, swimming in the ocean, when there's big waves and strong currents, and you feel like you're being pulled under, and there's not much you can do? That is a frightening scenario. And that's what this word depths or deep means. So with that in mind, look back to Psalm 130, verse 1. Keep that picture in mind, and here's what the psalmist is saying. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So he is feeling deep emotional and spiritual struggle. He's sinking down. These these emotional, spiritual struggles, it's like pulling him down, and he feels like there's nothing that he can do. He is just sinking down further and further and further. So what's the problem? What's causing this emotional, spiritual struggle? I think the answer is in verse 3. Look at what he says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, he's acknowledging, if God gave us what we deserve for our sins, none of us could stand innocent before him. If God gave our sins what we deserve, we are all guilty before him. We're all condemned, justly, rightly condemned by him. And there's nothing that we can do to make up for our sin. Nothing we can do to pay God back, to to make it right. We are guilty and condemned before God. That's what's true about us, verse 3 says. But now look at what's true about God in verse 4. But... With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now think about it like this. God could have been a God who only has justice. Just pure, perfect justice. No compassion, no forgiveness, no mercy. God God could have been a God with only justice. And that would mean that we are all doomed then, if that was the case. The Bible is very clear. God is not only just. God is also full of compassion and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. God's a forgiving God. Now that raises a question. Justice means that every sin has to be punished. So how can a God of justice forgive sin? Here's the amazing, shocking answer. He can forgive sin because he came to earth in the person of Jesus and he was punished on the cross in our place for our sin. He's died to pay for the sins of everyone who will trust Jesus. That's how he can be both just and forgiving. Because he came and was punished in the person of Jesus for our sins. And when we understand that, that God, the God of the universe, really does forgive sins, we will just be blown away, stunned. I thought of the words to the, remember the old hymn? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? 
Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's shocking. It's breathtaking when we understand who God is. The fact that he's perfectly just and that he forgives sin. And this will fill us with a a reverential awe, that kind of fear. And that's the point of verse four. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That we would just say, whoa, amazing. We love you. We worship you. Forgiveness. Okay, so then what is the psalmist going through? If we can put these clues together. We've seen that he's struggling emotionally and spiritually. He's sinking down, struggling. In verse 2, he's crying out to God. God, hear me. And then in verses 3 and 4, he admits that he's guilty before God, but that God does forgive sin. So what is he going through? When I put those together, here's what I come up with. He is struggling with guilt and shame because he's not sure that he is forgiven by God. He knows there's forgiveness with God, but he's not sure that he is forgiven by God. And that raises a really important question. Why wasn't he sure of God's forgiveness? Why wasn't he sure? We want to be sure of God's forgiveness. Why wasn't he sure? Let's learn from this. Now, one answer is that we know that if if we sin against God and do not confess our sin, do not repent of our sin, but keep holding on to that sin, then God will bring conviction and he will give us a taste of of guilt before him. And he does that to to wake us up, to shake us up. What are you doing? He loves us. He, He wants to warn us. Now, we can see an example of that in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 5. This is a very powerful passage. File this away in your memory bank. Memorize this. Learn this. So powerful. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. Look at what David says. He says, when I kept silent about his sin, he wasn't repenting, wasn't confessing, he was holding on to it. When When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. This conviction. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Remember, that's like a musical interlude just to let those last verses sink in deeper. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So get what's going on here. David had sinned against God, but he had not confessed it to the Lord. He was holding on to it, not repenting of it. So in his love, God brought his hand of conviction upon David, which made David groan and suffer. You know what that feels like, right? That that guilt, that conviction groaning, suffering. Now, this is crucial, church, for us to understand. Please don't miss this. If we sin and don't confess, don't repent, God will bring conviction upon us. He will give us a taste of true guilt. And it's right that we're feeling that guilt. And he's giving that to us so that we will be warned. 
If we're not confessing, if we're not repenting, he will not allow us to have assurance of forgiveness at that point. But when we do confess, when we do repent, he will pour out forgiveness upon us, pour out assurance that we're loved and forgiven and accepted by him. So that's David in Psalm 32. That's one reason why from time to time we don't feel assured that we're forgiven. It's because we've sinned and have not confessed it. That's Psalm 32. But I don't think that's the reason in Psalm 130. That is the reason in Psalm 32. But I think there's another reason in Psalm 130. The reason I say that is because nowhere in Psalm 130 do we read that the psalmist confesses and repents. It's like he's already done that. And he is still feeling like he's sinking down into guilt and shame. Just let me just walk you through Psalm 130. And notice there's no hint here of him confessing or repenting. Verse 1, he says, he's in the depths. He's struggling with feeling forgiven. Verse 2, God, hear my prayer. Verses 3 and 4, apart from your forgiveness, God, I'm guilty. And then in verses 5 and following, instead of confessing and repenting, he says, I'm waiting on you to meet me. I'm waiting on you to pour out forgiveness upon me. And so the fact that there's no place in this psalm where he's confessing and repenting shows that he's already confessed these sins and repented over these sins, and yet he is still feeling guilt over them. Anybody experience that? Every believer will experience this happening from time to time. So Psalm 130 is different from Psalm 32. Again, let me make the difference. I want to make sure you see this clearly. In Psalm, in Psalm 32, David is weighed down with guilt because he has not confessed his sin. That's why he's weighed down in Psalm 32. But in Psalm 130, the psalmist is weighed down with guilt even though he has confessed his sin. Which teaches us a very important truth. Saved people will have times when we have confessed and repented the sins that we're aware of and we will still struggle with feelings of guilt and shame and we're sinking down. And those feelings do not mean that we're not saved. Something else is going on. So I want to make sure we get this. When you are struggling with guilt over something and you have confessed it before the Lord, you have repented it, you've put your trust in Jesus. And if you're still struggling with guilt, that doesn't show that you haven't confessed enough. It doesn't show that you're not really saved. It doesn't show that you're going to be spiritually weak the rest of your life. Something else is going on. And what is that? The answer is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. What is going on at those times? Look at Ephesians 6, 16. Paul says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Who's the evil one? Satan. And what this verse tells us is that Throughout your day, Satan is going to be launching flaming darts at you. You're going through the day, all of a sudden, boom, this jealousy comes in you. Where did that come from? Oh, it's a flaming dart. Or fear about something. Or lust. Or greed. Or zoom, guilt about something you've done in the past. Shame about something that you've already confessed and repented of, but, oh, I can't believe I did that. And, oh, just the shame and the guilt. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brothers and sisters. 
He's our accuser. And he loves to launch those flaming, here's a real juicy, big, nasty accusation. This is gonna be, wow, wow, boom. And this, all of a sudden, you felt that. You've experienced that. That's why in Psalm 130, the psalmist was sinking down into guilt and shame. It's because that flaming dart of false guilt had hit him. Satan wants to just plunge us down into guilt and shame. So we're thinking, how can God forgive that sin? How could God love and welcome and accept somebody who's done that? How is that possible? And so we're sinking, sinking, sinking. Now here's the good news. The shield of faith, Paul says, can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. But that explains why there's times when we who have confessed our sins do struggle with guilt and shame. Satan is firing his flaming darts. So what should we do at those times? What should we do? How should we pray when we lack assurance of forgiveness? Well, let's start with Psalm 32 instead of Psalm 130. We'll get to Psalm 130. But we got to start here. Remember Psalm 32, David had not confessed his sin, was feeling guilty before God. And so the first step we should all take is check our hearts. Is there some sin that I have not confessed? Some sin that I am still holding on to? Are there areas in my life that where I've been in rebellion against God and I refuse to bring them to him, lay them at his feet and say, forgive me, cleanse me, change me? This is crucial that we do this. Like we need to ask ourselves, is there anybody that I'm, I'm not forgiving? Is there anybody that I'm, I'm not loving? Maybe somebody who's, who's harmed you. Is there something God has told you to do that, that you're, you're not doing? Or something he's told you not to do that you are? Is there something you're watching or looking at that you shouldn't be watching or looking at? And if there is, Confess it, because if you don't, then you will feel God's hand of conviction upon you. He will give you a taste of your true guilt before God. So the, that's the first step. And again, this is God's love that he does this. It's because he, he loves you that he lets you feel this guilt. Because it's spiritually dangerous to hold on to unconfessed sin, unrepented sin. It's dangerous to, to hold on. It's like, God, it's dangerous. It's like Superman holding on to kryptonite. Let it go. Get away from it. And because God loves us, he lets that conviction come upon us because he wants us to know something's wrong. <laughs> That's the first step in terms of praying. Confess and repent over any known sin. It doesn't mean we're sinless, but it means that every sin that we're aware of, we're battling. We're confessing. We're repenting. Do that. And when you do that, God will pour his forgiveness and his assurance out upon you. It'll be beautiful. But like I said, that's not what's going on in Psalm 130. Psalm 130, the author has confessed and repented of his sin, and he still is doubting that he's forgiven. He still is feeling Satan's flaming darts of guilt and shame hitting him. So what should we do at those times? That's what we want to focus on here. Look at what we see in Psalm 130. First of all, what should we do? Verse one, we should cry 
out to God. Cry out to God. Verse one, out of the depths, I'm sinking down into these depths. I'm, I'm sinking down. I'm going to cry out to God. And, and this word cry out means you are, you're pleading with God. You're, you're calling upon God. You're passionately crying out to him. So you're not just, well, I guess I'm just going to have a hard day spiritually today. Or I, I guess I'm just kind of in a low point. Or maybe this is just, I'm just kind of a weak Christian. No, 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 no. Cry out to the Lord. Help me. I'm sinking. Help me. That's the first step. Cry out to God. Second, ask him to hear you. We saw that last week, remember? Verse two, psalmist does it again here. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So last week we saw that when we pray this, God will strengthen our faith that he is hearing our prayers, that he's welcoming our prayers, that his arms are wide open to us when we say, Father, hear my prayer. Incline your ear to me. He will strengthen your faith that he is hearing you and that he's welcoming every prayer. So ask him to hear you. And third, admit your guilt as a sinner. Verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This is beautiful. So the psalmist is humbling himself before God, admitting, Father, if you responded to me the way I deserve, I would be undone forever. Undone. So admit to God, there's, there's nothing that you can do to make up for your sin. Just there's, there's, Here I am. There's nothing I can do. Left to myself, your justice would condemn me. And this is so powerful to pray because it will destroy any self-righteousness that's remaining in us. And self-righteousness is deadly when it comes to prayer. God hates self-righteousness. And when you admit this, it will enable you to be stripped clean, washed clean of self-righteousness. So you can just cast yourself upon the mercy of God. God, I have, I have no other hope than your mercy in Jesus. There's no other refuge for me. Just you, I'm coming to you. You are all I have in your mercy. You alone, God. Oh, it's a beautiful place to be. Fourth, celebrate God's forgiveness through the cross. Verse four, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So remind yourself of what God has done through Jesus on the cross. And I would encourage you as you pray, open up your Bible and look at verses that talk about the cross, what Jesus did like. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, forgiven, cleansed, having been put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. And then look at Psalm 103, verse 12. This is amazing. As far as the east is from the west, how far is the east from the west? Far, okay? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So take time to pray over scriptures that describe what Jesus did on the cross. Don't make the mistake 
This is a deadly mistake. Don't make the mistake of thinking, well, I've been a Christian for a little while now. I need to kind of move on from the cross to something that's a little bit more advanced now. You know, cross, that's like for the baby Christians. I want something that's really more sophisticated here. No. Cling to the cross. Love the cross. Rely on the cross. Boast in the cross. Speak of the cross. If you move on from the cross, Satan can destroy you. Stay at the cross, at the foot of the cross. That's where we all are, where we all should be. So celebrate God's forgiveness through the cross. And then fourth, I love this, wait expectantly for God to assure you of forgiveness. Don't just stop with the third step. Wait now, wait expectantly. Look at verses five and six. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Now, Pastor Ben preached on waiting on God a few weeks ago from Psalm 62. Such a helpful sermon. If you haven't heard it, listen to it. Waiting on God means trusting God to work, trusting him to do something. So, so waiting isn't just like we're, like we're waiting for the bus, you know, <laughs> waiting, waiting, waiting. It's not what waiting on God is, or it's not like you're long line at Lulu's. Okay, just kind of waiting. We'll get up there soon. That's not what waiting on God means. Waiting on God means looking to him, expecting him to work, anticipating that he's going to work, longing for him to work. And notice those lines more than the watchman for the morning. I asked our home group about this when we were studying it. And one of the guys said that when he used to work night shift, from the very moment he clocked in, he was longing for morning to come. All through the night, longing for morning to come. Longing, waiting, anticipating, hoping, desiring. And that's what the, the psalmist is doing here. He's waiting on God. He's looking to God with anticipation with hope, with longing, knowing that God's going to come. It's not happening yet, but it's going to happen. He's waiting on the Lord to, to work. And what is he waiting on God to do? It's to, to lift him up out of the mire. I'm sinking down. I'm sinking down. Help me, God. Ah, okay. That's what he's waiting on God to do. Lift him out of the depths. Set him free from his guilt Pour his love into his heart. Give the psalmist assurance of forgiveness. That I don't miss this. Part of waiting on God is hoping in his word. So when you're waiting on God, have the Bible open in front of you. Because the Bible, God's promises will show you what God promises to do. And pray over those promises. God, you've promised to do this. I'm waiting on you. Come and do it. I pray. Come and meet me. Promises like John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Hunger and thirst, it's all kinds of heart hungers and thirsts we have, but one of them is guilt and shame. It's that thirst, oh, I want to be assured I'm forgiven. I want to be loved. I want to be accepted by God. If we come to him and believe in him, he will quench that thirst. And Jesus says the same thing in John 7, 37 to 38. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, 
as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When you come to Jesus and you believe in Jesus, all your heart thirsts will be quenched, overflowingly quenched, particularly the heart thirst of guilt and shame, as is dealt with in Psalm 130. So that's how we should pray at those times when we have confessed our sins, but we're still struggling with sinking down into shame and guilt and not being assured that we're forgiven. So we should cry out to God, ask him to hear us, admit our guilt as sinners, celebrate God's forgiveness through the cross, and then wait expectantly, prayerfully for God to assure us, to lift us out of the mire, to pour his love into our hearts, to refresh us with this, this fresh sense of forgiveness. That's how the psalmist prayed. Now, how did God answer? This is interesting. The psalmist doesn't tell us directly, but what he does is he gives us verses seven and eight, which show that something's happened to him. He's talking very differently in verses seven and eight than he was back in verse one. Remember in verse one, the psalmist was in the depths, struggling with feelings of guilt and shame, doubting that God had forgiven him. But look at verses seven and eight. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So he's gone from doubting he's forgiven to celebrating the abundance of God's forgiveness in verses seven and eight and calling everyone else to celebrate this and experience this with him. So God answered his prayers, gave him fresh assurance of forgiveness and a fresh outpouring of his love. And Grace Church, that's what God will do for you as well. He's promised. So when you struggle with feelings of shame and guilt and lack of assurance, don't give up. Don't assume I'm, I'm just a weak Christian, I guess. It's just how I'm going to be. Understand what's going on. Satan is firing his flaming darts at you. That's what's going on. Oh, okay. I know. I know what that is. And make sure you've confessed all your known sin, repented, brought it before the Lord, laid it at his feet, and then wait on the Lord to give you a fresh outpouring of his love and his forgiveness. And he will. Let me tell you how George Whitfield experienced this. George Whitfield, powerfully used by God to fill England with the gospel in the 1700s, like we're praying God will use us and other churches to fill Abu Dhabi with the gospel in, in, this, in these years. But listen to what he wrote in his journal, George Whitfield. After being buffeted by Satan for a long time, under much guilt, God helped me lay hold of his dear son by a living faith. And oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and the pardoning love of God and full assurance of faith broke in upon my soul. That's what we're talking about 
That's Psalm 130. Now, we won't all experience exactly the same thing that George Whitfield did, but that gives you the kind of idea of what God does. He will change your heart. He will lift you out of sinking down, out of the miry pit. He will give you fresh assurance of his love, his forgiveness in Christ. That's what he will do. So I want to encourage you. Some of you are in this place right now, I would, I would bet. But if you're not, file it away for future reference. When you've confessed and repented of all known sin, but you're still struggling with guilt and shame, turn to the Lord. Call upon him. Ask him to hear your prayer. Confess your sinfulness and your guilt before God and celebrate God's forgiveness in the cross and then wait on the Lord. Open up the scriptures. Pray. Press in. Lord, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm going to keep praying. I may have, have to go to work or do the laundry or whatever, but I'm, I'm going to keep praying until you pour your spirit of refreshing re, uh, forgiveness and love and assurance out upon me again. And Grace Church, I tell you, God will do that. He is faithful to his promises. Let's stand together. I want to pray this for us. We worship you for giving God.